Ooh, well, what a week it's been, right? And I know you're saying it's Sunday, it's a new week. What a week last week was. So, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Luke 11 is where we're going to be camping out uh, this morning. And I think there's this almost ironic nature to, uh, if you see the title of, of where we were last week in comparison to this week. Like last week we had Peter's grand confession of Christ in Luke chapter 9, and now here we are of the rejection of Christ in Luke 11. So in about a span of a week, we've gone from confession to rejection really quickly. Um, and I think I will probably say this, I, I speak for probably most of mankind, that we do not enjoy the feeling of rejection, right? We don't, we don't like hearing the word no. Like if you're Vladimir Putin, you don't want to hear, no, you can't have Ukraine. Um, but we do not like rejection. And I have my own horror stories of uh, going through high school and going into college of where, well, I'll put this out. I never dated while I was in high school, and there was a reason behind that. Uh, the reason was, predominantly, my mom was a teacher at the high school that I worked at, and I was, just had this, this lingering fear that if there was a girl that I liked and I asked her out, that she would say no, and then she would run to my mom, and my mom would find out it would be this big deal, to which my mom would say, well, who would reject you? And uh, <laughs> she has to. But uh, that carried into college with me to where it took me a very long time to ask out Laura. And I got to this point where really I was just kind of hoping she was going to ask me <laughs> because I knew I wouldn't have said no. And my best friend in the world, I remember one day he messaged her and said, Brady has something he wants to ask you, but he's afraid you'll say no. And there's only like one other thing that could have been about. And so I, to this day, I still hold it against him. And so all that's to say, uh, we as a people are terrified of human rejection. And that's probably pretty normal. But how often do we shudder at the idea of being rejected by the living God? And I'd say that at, at, in a whole that most mankind doesn't. And the reason is if they did, that we would see a lot more people running to the foot of the cross. If people really were concerned about being rejected by God, they would be running to him, begging for his forgiveness. So in these verses that we're looking at tomorrow, we're not looking at this love story of rejection between a guy and a girl. We're looking at uh, rejection towards the living Savior. So we're going to divide this up into two sections of verses. We're going to start in verse 29, and then we'll carry over into verse 37. It should not come as a surprise to any of us that a fallen world rejects its Savior. Man has the tendency to run and hide when confronted by the holy God of the universe. And notice that whenever you look in Scripture, you always see the same response when God's presence comes into the forefront of, of fallen human beings. Every man and woman or child who comes face to face with the living God in Scripture, what do they do? They fall flat on their face in fear. Because sinful human beings cannot stand in the presence of the holy and righteous God. Man always has the tendency to run and hide. Just look at Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Instead of running to that which was most sweet to them, what do they do? They hightail it out of there. They hide. That which they were closest to is no longer close to them anymore. So, we've got a lot to look at today, don't we? Because we know that sinners cannot stand in the presence of the righteous and holy God. So I'm going to open us up in prayer, and then we are going to dive in. So let's pray. 
God, there is a heavy message to be given this morning, and there is uh, hope behind the words at the same time, knowing that you are full of grace and full of mercy, and that even if there are some here who have rejected you time and time again, they're still here, so time has not truly ran out. May our hearts be open to your word today. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen. So Luke eleven twenty nine. Uh, through 32 is what we're going to start with. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. I'll put it out there. I don't think that the generation that Jesus is speaking to is that much different than our own generation. Uh, And I say this because how often do you hear the words, maybe not uh, directly from somebody, but how often do you hear the words, oh, if, if God would just give me a sign, then I would believe in him. If this big neon sign from heaven would come down then surely I would believe in him because, look, he's given me this sign. It's like he threw a stop sign at my face of some sin I was doing. Now I know, well, stop signs don't just fall from heaven. That must be a sign from God. And so, man, they have this tendency to ask for signs from heaven despite really having no intention of following through with them. Because understand, even if a big neon sign from heaven came down right now and you all saw it, there's probably, maybe there could be this indication of, well, they planned that. That sign was just going to show up anyway. It's a hallucination. Like, there's going to be something that comes up that people are going to reject. It's always going to be this little ounce of something that they're going to want more. Man is always going to find another reason as to why they would not believe. So Jesus, speaking of this generation, he said that the people were seeking a sign, but they were not seeking the one that was giving it. You see, this generation that Christ is speaking to is not a generation of ignorance. It's not a people who, who were unaware of the things of God. So you have to ask, in this crowd that is following Jesus, who is, who, who's in it? Who is he talking to? And he's talking to the native Jews, these, these men and women who grew up with the Old Testament, with knowledge of God. And so when Jesus says that this evil generation was seeking a sign, it's almost you could interpret it as, as this form of Gnosticism. And if you don't know what Gnosticism is, it's this ancient heresy that still kind of has some some impact today, and it's this belief that there's this sort of hidden knowledge that that man is capable of tapping into, but but not every man. There's a select few who are able to tap into this uh, hidden knowledge, this hidden power, and they believe that they could just tap into this power even though it's been hidden from others. So the people that Jesus is referring to are those that wanted to go beyond the giver of the sign and go straight into the power of the sign itself. They're looking for a sign of heaven while trying to look past the one whom all of heaven worships. See, they didn't care what the sign was being used for. They wanted to be entertained. They wanted to to tap into that power. And they wanted a sign so that they could be a better version of themselves without having to change anything within themselves. They just wanted to feel power. They wanted to feel like they were a part of the elite, of this this hidden agenda from the rest of the world. So when I say that Gnosticism is present today, it's because I think that when you look at the state of the world, 
you see that there's always these people that are trying to reach this hidden potential. That they think that there's, like, like think of, of like prosperity gospel. There's this hidden, like if you just have a little more of this, then you can have a whole lot of this. Think of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Like there's only going to be a select few, and we were given this special knowledge to, and, and we're trying to share this little special knowledge so that other people can be reached with it. And think of like even the weirder things, people who, who think that certain moon cycles or vibes or crystals have this like healing influential power, uh, you know, whatever. They think that they can get a better version of themselves without changing anything truly important about themselves. So Gnosticism hasn't vanished, it's just changed names. It's sad and ironic that the people that keep asking Jesus for a sign, they're asking him as if he didn't just, you know, get rid of a demon 15 verses earlier. See, Jesus had already done signs. It's not like this is like the first day on the job where he's never done anything yet. Uh, Jesus has been doing signs. He does so many, and he has so many yet to do, that John would go on to write that now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. He'd done great miracles, the greatest of which was still to come with his own resurrection from the dead. This man had done miracles. The crowds had seen him cast out demons, feed thousands, heal men, women, children, raise the dead. Uh, what greater sign could he give? And we see that the only one that could maybe come close was, was the sign of Jonah. But there was nothing that would have convinced this generation that this was the Son of God through sheer sign alone. And this reality is talked about later in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You may have uh, heard of that one. Uh, the parable goes that there's a rich man who has everything, and there's a poor man named Lazarus who has nothing. Uh, the rich man is uh, having feasts. He has uh, servants. He has all things going well for him in life, while Lazarus is uh, poor, living out on the streets, and having the dogs lick his wounds. Now, at the time of Christ, if you were a rich man, it was usually assumed that you were living a righteous life. Now, why would that be the assumption? Well, the assumption was that, well, if you're, if, if you're so blessed in life, it's because you must be righteous. And so when Jesus is beginning this parable, you, I, I have this feeling that if the people in the crowd are assuming that Lazarus is going to be the negative example. Because if you were poor, if you were out on the street, if things were going horribly for you, you must have done something to inherit the wrath of God. But that is not what Jesus is going with here. You see... Lazarus, the poor man, is the one that is rejected, and he's the outcast, but it is he that inherits the treasures of heaven. It's the poor, desperate man that ends up with everything, and the rich, self-righteous man that ends up with nothing. See, the time comes when both men die. Lazarus is carried to heaven while the rich man suffers in hell. The rich man sees Lazarus at the side of Abraham, and he begs that Lazarus would come and just give him a drop of water because he's that desperate. But he's told that the two cannot pass from one side to the other. And so the rich man, he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to his five brothers so they can be warned about the eternity that awaits them unless they repent. And what does Abraham say? No. Abraham says, no. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And here's how this uh, happens. And the rich man, he says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
So what was Jesus saying in this parable? It's really the same thing that he's saying in Luke 11, that man is not going to be convinced by sheer signs alone. You see, the, the graves in the graveyard, people could literally come out of them right now, and an unrepentant world would still find reason to reject it. That's the reality of what Jesus is saying. People would still doubt, and we know that this is true because of the reality of Christ's own resurrection. R.C. Sproul, he said that those of you who are still looking for signs, those of you who are still waiting to be convinced, who are looking for more evidence from God than he's already given, your hope is futile because God has already provided you with the ultimate sign. See, uh, man has no desire to know the God who is there. And this is why it's so crucial that the Holy Spirit empowers our work for the gospel. Because if he's not there, we're wasting our time. We could raise someone from the dead, and it would mean nothing if the Spirit is not working in the hearts of men. You see, the world is like Simon in the book of Acts. It wants to buy and possess the power of God without having to make any change in their own lives whatsoever. They don't want no desire to know the God who is actually empowering them to do that work. So what, what Jesus does, by pointing to the sign of Jonah, he's making this argument from the lesser to the greater. He is pointing out that the entire Gentile, the wicked city of Nineveh, repented at the message of Jonah. But here in front of them was someone far greater than Jonah. The people of that generation and this generation that Christ is speaking to have no excuse for unbelief. Well, why is that? Because just as Jonah was evidence of salvation to the people of Nineveh, Christ is the greater sign of salvation to the world. The cross, the empty tomb, are the greatest miracles that God could give to an unbelieving world. And if they are not willing to believe that Christ is God and is raised from the dead, they will perish, period. See, the people of Nineveh, they're going to be able to rise up. They're going to be able to condemn that generation and this generation. They're going to say, how could you not believe? The signs were there. The, the, the tomb has been empty now for 2,000 years. How could you not believe? God in the flesh was there. The signs there. You see, those that refuse to believe the message of Christianity, uh, it's not because they, they're rejecting it because facts are pointing in the other direction. Understand that the resurrection of Christ has been gone down as the most well-documented event in human history. There's no more evidence for practically any other event than there is for the resurrection of Christ. Many say that, that if, if they would just have a sign, they would believe. The sign's been going on for 2,000 years. Look at the church. We're evidence that Christ is risen, right? The tomb is just as empty today as it was 2,000 years ago. And unless there's a changing by the Holy Spirit, no sign from heaven is going to change their mind. See, I had a conversation a few weeks ago um, with some friends about how uh, when, when, when the events of Revelation start to unfold, how is it that you're going to have people who don't believe what's going on? Because doesn't it seem kind of weird that all the stuff that's being written about in this book seems to be happening you know, at that time? I don't think we're there yet. I think we, we're getting there, but I don't think we're there yet. Um, and it's the same thing that's here. Man in their sinful, selfish pride is going to say, it's probably nothing. It's probably just a, a phase. I mean, uh, it, it, they're going to be so focused on self, so focused on their pride, so focused on sin. And keep in mind, even this is a side note, this isn't in my notes. Um, when we get to that point in Revelation where the kings of the earth, the wicked men of the earth are saying, uh, mountains fall down on us because we'd rather deal with that than with God, that's not them saying, I believe what the scriptures teach. That's them saying, I'd rather go out on my own terms than trust the God who can save me on his. But that's besides what Carl will probably get there at some point. 
<laughs> uh, if you're an unbeliever today, now's the time to turn to Christ. Last week was the time. You're still here. There's still time to do it. But time is going to run out. You don't need another sign. The tomb is empty. Christ is risen. And we believe the gospel of Christ and believe it while you still have time. And with the time that we have left, we can now transition into the next part of Luke. So you see how I planned that. Uh, Luke 37, if you want to turn there, Luke writes, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourself do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation." from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who are entering. We see a further rejection of Christ, but I want you to notice who it is that's rejecting him. Um, it's not those that have no idea about the Bible. He's not talking to the Gentiles who uh, were seen as the outcasts, those who would never be able to tap into uh, the chance of redemption, Jesus is referring to the religious elites. He's referring to those that thought that they had it all together. Now, from the outside, if anybody was going to achieve heaven, like, if you were just to look at the Pharisees, you would think it would be the Pharisees and the lawyers. Like, if anyone was going to have the appearance of religion perfected, it was these men. Should it not then concern us that Jesus is addressing those directly that had the appearance of religion. Shouldn't we be worried that he is addressing those that looked like they had it all together? See, uh, walk with these, these woes. This is where we get back to verse 39. Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. And the question is in this, are we dressing up to look Christian? Are we just dressing it up? Are we, are we like just playing the part of a faithful follower, but inside we're still full of that wickedness. We're still full of that, that unrepentance, that un, unregeneration, unchanged. You see, some of us can know the word of God without being changed by it. And, and the reality is, how many may profess Christ without being possessed by Christ? There's a difference. I think you can see some great teachers of the Bible who know nothing of the, of the Christ who is the, the word itself. You see, numbers are not a sign of a healthy church, and the appearance of religion is not the assurance of salvation. How, what is a healthy church? It is when individual members are conformed heart and mind and soul to the image of Christ. 
You see these verses? This is, I think, exactly what Paul warns the church in Corinth of in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You see, uh, I, I, when I look at the, these verses, I see how Paul is warning us that we should never be so confident in our outer religious appearance that we lose sight of how desperately we need the Lord to sustain us. And, and when I read these verses, I always try to reread it uh, uh, to make it personal for me. Therefore, if I think that I stand, let me take heed lest I fall. And I think that that is a, a good thing for any of us to do when we can take this scripture and we apply it to ourselves. Because the last thing that any of us should do is say, well, that's not going to apply to me because I, I got this down. You see, uh, we need to keep in mind that as Paul is writing this, he's addressing, and he's bringing up again, uh, the generation that came out of Egypt. And remember that the Israelites were the chosen people of God. They'd seen the signs done by the Lord in Egypt. They saw, they crossed the Red Sea. They've been through uh, Moses talking or striking a rock and seeing water come out of it. They've seen all these cool, amazing things of God. And yet, out of that entire generation, it's only Joshua and Caleb that see the promised land. In verse 43, uh, Jesus goes on to say, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Sometimes those that are furthest from God are those that are sitting closest to the pulpit. Some of those that are furthest away from salvation, sorry, Jan. Some of those that are furthest away from Christ are those who have been in church the longest because they have this appearance of religion. So ask, what are you here for? Why are you here? Are you here that you may be known, or are you here so that you may know God? You see, those that put on the appearance of Christ do more than just show themselves off as Christians. They try to do the things that, that Christians would approve of. So if you look at verse 42, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Let me tell you what I think this sounds like. I think this sounds a lot like the issue plaguing the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. This sounds almost exactly like the problem that Jesus is referring to. So Jesus says uh, in Revelation 2, too, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. At this point, this sounds like a perfect church. This sounds like if, if any church is going like, to get like, all, the, all the Michelin stars or whatever it is for, for churches, that it's going to be this one. But look at what Jesus says at the end. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They hadn't just like, their, their love didn't just diminish. He said you, you've abandoned it entirely. So Jesus is saying, guys, you're doing everything right. The doctrine is great. The mission projects are perfect. The worship sounds really good. Uh, the, the, the working that you have, the ministries that you're doing, they're all solid. But I have this against you. You don't love me like you used to. And that is a problem. You've abandoned the love that you've had for me at first. You're going through the motions. You're giving in the name of Christ, but you have no love for him. Husbands, you're probably aware by now that your wife doesn't care how you used to love her. That's important, but what, is, what matters now? How do you love her now? Wives, same thing. If that is how our earthly relationships work, 
it probably matters how we're loving our Heavenly Father now. You see, I, I don't think, uh, I, I think that it's important to see the love that we have for God now. The Pharisees were giving and sacrificing, but it, it wasn't really good for anything. In fact, it was good for nothing. And some of us might be like the unmarked graves that Christ referred to in verse 44, where we're trying to, to hide what's really going on inside. Where we're just trying to put on this, this outer appearance that, that inside we're not dead. And I, I think, and I'll, I'll be honest, I don't think that when we're going to get to heaven that we're going to be disappointed. I don't think we're going to have any time to look back on, on this past life because we've got God right in front of us, and that's going to draw a lot of attention, I think. But I think that if, if disappointment were possible, I think that we would find that we're more surprised about the people that are there that we didn't think would get in than we are at the people that surprisingly got in. And we're going to we'll say, you know, well, where's Pastor so-and-so? Where's where that great donor to the church? Where's this, this person who was teaching Sunday school, this, this, this professor in the New Testament? Oh, she led this group. He went on this mission trip. Where are they at? Why won't they be there? Because you can look very religious without taking a single step into eternity. You can look very Christian-y without being a Christian. That's why we take heed lest we fall. Do I think that we can have assurance of our salvation? Absolutely. Because if we couldn't, Paul, I don't understand what he says when he says that, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is so certain that if God begins the work in you, he will see it to completion. You see, uh, that assurance never comes from our deeds. The assurance of your salvation does not come from your appearance of godliness. No, that assurance comes from the very same place that your faith started. It comes straight from the heart and hands of God. One more thing that Jesus mentions of how those that appear religious reject him. You see, we reject Christ when we seek to add to the gospel or we hinder those that are trying to come to him. Look again at verses 45 through 46. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also. For some reason, I always thought that was funny. It's like Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, and a lawyer comes up, and he's like, uh, You know, teacher, I don't really like that. He's like, Well, you know what? Now i got something to say about you, too. Uh, woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You see, these lawyers knew the law. You see, these lawyers weren't just law lawyers. They were lawyers of the law of God. Like, they knew the law almost probably just as well as the Pharisees did, um, but they were adding to it. They saw people suffering under the weight of the law, and they thought, I'm going to add to that burden. I'm not going to care for this, brother. I'm going to try to make this difficult for them. And they're saying the opposite of what Christ says to us in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We reject Christ when we attempt to add to his gospel. We're saying this is the partial way to do this. Jesus didn't tell you all the way to do it, but here, we need to add to this so that you might be saved. See, this is, this, here's the thing. We, we're not going to say Christianity is easy. Live it long enough and you're going to know that it isn't. And I think that if more people knew that it wasn't going in, you'd ultimately see less people leaving the church today. Because we're just trying to add into the numbers and give this appearance of, well, not us specifically, but, you know, churches. I, might, you know, I love our church. I'm not saying we're doing it. Uh, you got a lot of churches that say, 
come get that hidden power, come get that hidden knowledge, let's live our best lives, yay Jesus. Uh, and you know what? They're going to empty out quick. Um, Charles Spurgeon, he said that it appears to me that he spoke thus so that none may despair, that, that despair may not even come near us, and that we may not despond at the possibility of our salvation. Christ has a yoke for us to wear, so let us wear it seriously, but it is an easy yoke, so let us wear it hopefully. He has a burden for us to carry for him, so let us be in earnest in bearing it, but it is a light burden, so let us be full of joy at the very prospect of carrying it. Are you adding a law to, the, to something of the gospel? What burden are we adding to our brothers? And if you're adding to the gospel, you're rejecting Christ. And if you're hindering one's walk with Christ, you may ultimately be jeopardizing your own. So I advise every single person that we check our hearts. We don't, we're not like the Pharisees who were convinced that we could get to heaven on our own merits through our own religious appearance. And let me share with you what I think are, without a doubt, the scariest words in all of Scripture. Uh, the scariest verses in the Bible, I think, are Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness you workers of iniquity, you, you lovers of sin and self. Um, I'm hoping this does not apply to a single person in here. Certainly hope it doesn't apply to me. Certainly hope it doesn't apply to you. Um, this, to borrow from R.C. Sproul again, there's, there's two types of people in hell. There'll be those that are weeping and those that are gnashing their teeth. There'll be those that are just, just totally despondent, so broken. And then there's going to be those who will be gnashing their teeth saying, how dare you, God? How dare you give me this? I'd rather you be here than me. You deserve to be here more than I do. Let's say if I get to the end, theology's wrong, not saved by grace through faith, like I thought, like the Bible, I believe, teaches. You can bet if I were to wake up in hell tomorrow that I'd be a weeper because I'd have no complaint that I would be able to make to my Heavenly Father. I would not be able to say that he had done any form of injustice. If I was to wake up in hell tomorrow, I would know that I've only inherited perfect justice from the perfect and righteous judge of the universe. He that is never cruel, never unkind, always and perfectly just. The reality is there may be someone in this room whom the Lord has never known. And I would pray that you would be one that he does. In verse 52, Christ warns the lawyers that they themselves have put up obstacles in the way of those that were attempting to come to the kingdom of God, and they themselves are also not able to enter. Are we putting up obstacles in the way of getting to the kingdom of God? See, like the lawyers, we know what the word of God says. It's not like we don't have any access to it. We know what the Bible says, um, but what are we going to do with the word that we've been given? See, I've told my, my kids, like, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day, you know, maybe 10 years from now, when they graduate, when they go to college, and, and I can, I, if I see them, you know, in Walmart, because that's, like, the one place to go if you ever want to see anybody here, um, if I see them in Walmart, like, I'm going to want to know, like, hey, uh, where'd you go to school? Did you meet your spouse? You know, do you have kids? I'm gonna, like, it'll be great to know all those things, 
But what's going to matter to me more than anything is what did they do with the truth that they've been given? Did they, was, it, was it like the treasure that the man dug in the dirt? Or did they go out and what did it multiply in their lives? See, that's what I want to know more than anything. So the same thing can apply to us. Has, has what we've heard today, has it penetrated our hearts or is it only living in our heads? What are we going to do with what we've heard today? You see, the worst thing that you can do, I'll tell you the worst thing that you can do. The worst thing you can do is say, that was a good message and I hope so-and-so heard it. That's the worst thing that you can say. Like, like if some of you are sitting and you're just like, hope you're listening over there. He's talking about you. No, I'm talking about all of you. That's why we've, we've, we've covered like every type of person. What are you going to do with this? What is your relationship with Christ like? Do you have one? Remember, it isn't just the hard-hearted atheists that reject Christ. It's those that are the, have the appearance of the religious elites. So there's not a single person in here who can't apply something that we've learned today. And so let's, let's talk about that, because let's say we go through all of this and you're saying, well, so what? I want to give you three, what time is it? Three really quick applications, or one application for three type of people. First one is this, unbelievers. Turn and repent. Wayne beautifully gave the gospel last week, if you were here. Everything that is necessary for salvation, we've talked about. We talked about it last week, and we talked about it today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. We're not adding anything to the gospel. We, if anything, people have the tendency to try to make salvation way too difficult. The fact that children can say, if you want to go to heaven, believe in Jesus, uh, believe and have faith in him, that's, that's pretty simple. The hard work's been done. You don't have to die on a cross. The hard work's been done. Believe in that truth. That is your application today. Take what you've heard today, repent, and believe. Uh, number two, then, the religious. The people that are just pretending, the people that, that have, have put on the appearance of religion, the time's going to come where that act is going to be too hard to carry out. There's going to be a time when that burden that you're carrying of, of I'm looking really good as a Christian is going to come to this reality where, no, you're really not. But you're here now, and we know that grace abounds. Tap into that grace. Believe in that grace. And then finally, for the believers, uh, we take the message of Paul, that we take heed lest we fall. You see, Jonathan Edwards, uh, he, he had this idea and when he was 18 to, 19, 18 to 19 years old, he had this series of resolutions. And at 18 to 19, he, he, to put it in modern English, he put it basically like this. At any given time, there is somebody on this planet who God would probably see, if there's like a ranking system, as the highest ranking Christian, as the best Christian who is living in the time of whatever. Uh, his resolution was that he was going to do all that he could to make sure that that was applicable to him. That is what he wanted. And so what we know now is that uh, we're not perfect yet. What does Paul say in Philippians 4? I, I was, I, I'm still, I'll be honest, I was still writing this up as we were singing, so that was probably pretty bad. Like That's how much, like I want to put so much into this. There's a lot that God says in here. Philippians 4, what does Paul say? He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies 
ahead. Believers, we're not perfect yet. The time may come when we are in the presence of Christ, but we're not perfect yet. So what do we do? We go. We strive to the best of our abilities to do all that we can so that we may represent Christ. Let us all take heed lest we fall. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I'll put this out there too. I, uh, I'm not a fan of altar calls. Um, I don't like the idea necessarily. I don't really see it in the Bible where Jesus does altar calls or raise your hands if you want to believe in me. Um, I want to pray for you if you're one of these three people that we've just talked about. But I don't want you to have to come up here because you've just been confronted with sin. You've been confronted with the appearance of religion. And I tell the kids that I heard it like this. When an animal is injured, it doesn't like run up to the front of the hunter. What does it do? It runs to the back to lick its wounds. So I'm going to be in the back today as we worship together. And if you need prayer, I'll be in the back. But let's go to him now in prayer. God, we've looked at heavy truths, but we've also heard of tremendous grace, tremendous love, perfect kindness, total just, the total just God, a total beautiful Savior. I pray as we leave here today that we all take heed lest we fall, that we all check our hearts. We know that there's not a sign that will convince an unbelieving world, but let us strive to be the sign to them that we have been saved by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.